0: On either side of the Ella Valley in ancient Palestine, two armies set up camp in a stalemate. On one side, the Israelis pitched their tents in defense of the arch enemies, the Philistines, who had come marching up the valley from the coast. Neither army dares to make a move on the other, because it would require descending into the valley down the dusty slopes, before attempting again to climb up them on the other side, while the enemy is looking down on you, firing spears and slinging rocks right into your ranks. Eventually, the attacking Philistines sent their mightiest warrior down into the valley to resolve the deadlock in a one-on-one duel. The man trudged down the dirty slope. He was a giant, six foot nine, with a full set of bronze armor. He held a sword and a spear in either hand, with a javelin slung on his back. The giant stared up at the defending Israelites, who looked down on him from their ridge. He shouted, challenging them to send a man down to battle him. If their man succeeds in beating the giant, then the attackers would become slaves to the Israelites. However, if the giant won, then the Israelites must surrender and become slaves to the Philistines. The Israeli camp remained still with fear. Who could possibly win against a giant like that? even the most heroic of the Israeli soldiers declined to go forth, because it was practically suicide. But in the camp, there was a small shepherd boy. The boy volunteered to fight the giant. The king of the Israelites obviously objected for his men and his land was at stake, but the boy was adamant. He told the king that he had fought opponents of far more frightening calibre before, such as bears and lions. With confidence abundant, the shepherd boy ran off down into the mouth of the valley to face the giant. In the following minutes, one of time's most famous battles would take place, for the boy's name was David, and the giant's was Goliath. There was a game we used to play back in primary school called Broken Telephone. All the members of our class would sit in a circle, and someone would come up with a phrase in their head and then whisper it to the kid sitting next to them. That kid would whisper what they thought they heard to the next kid, and so on and so forth. A very rare moment of silence fell on the classroom as the whisper made its way, one by one, around the circle. We would all watch in suspense, until eventually the final kid in the circle would announce what they had just heard in their ear. You see, each time one of us heard and retold the whisper, we would make slight mistakes. So when the final whisper was told, and we compared it with the original, the silence would shatter with laughter, as it was almost always completely different. This episode is about broken telephones. About stories that change. When David reached the bottom of the valley, Goliath looked straight at him and felt almost insulted, for David had no armor, no sword, and not even a shield. All he had was a wooden shepherding staff and a little measly leather sling. But that was all David needed. He placed a rock into the pouch of his sling and whirled it faster and faster and faster, taking aim at the only point on the giant that was unprotected by armor, Goliath's forehead. David released his sling and hit his mark perfectly. Goliath toppled to the earth where he lay face first in the dust, death on his eyes. Upon seeing their unbeatable hero defeated, the Philistines fled with great haste, and David was crowned the miraculous underdog victor, the boy who slayed the giant. At least, that's how the story has been told over the last 3,000 years, but it is almost entirely wrong. Like a game of broken telephone, the battle of David and Goliath has been told and retold so many times that the original story is lost completely. You see, ancient warfare in David and Goliath's time typically involved three kinds of warriors. The first were a chariot or horseback riders, they were the cavalry. The second were soldiers wearing armor and carrying close-quarters weapons. These were the infantry. And the third were archers and slingers, the artillery. This, in essence, was like a game of rock-paper-scissors. The cavalry, with their fast and agile horses, were far too difficult for the artillery to hit with arrows or rocks, but in turn, the long spears and heavy armor of the infantry were able to shut the cavalry down. Because of their heavy armor and close quarters weapons though, the infantry were very slow and easy picking for the artillery, which closes a nicely balanced battlefield of rock-paper-scissors. Infantry beating cavalry, cavalry beating artillery, and artillery beating infantry. So when Goliath shouted a challenge up to the Israelis, he expected a bronze-on-bronze battle with a fellow infantryman. In this instance, he would almost certainly have won because of his size and his reach. The Israeli king, too, was assuming this type of battle, hence his hesitancy towards sending tiny little David down the ridge. David, however, who regularly had to defend his sheep flock from predators, had plenty of experience with a sling. He saw the gigantic, slow-moving Goliath as an easy target. Thus, he took quickly off down into the valley without bothering for armor. He had no intention of getting close to the giant in the first place. He sprinted down took aim and fired. Ballistics experts today believe that the rock slings had about the same power as a regular sized modern handgun and say that David could have wound up a shot that powerful in under a second. David did exactly what he was supposed to do as an artilleryman. He slayed the 6 foot 9 slow moving armoured giant. The David and Goliath story today represents the underdog story. Because through 3,000 years of retelling, the story has lost all of its important battle context, and has thus been chalked up to be, quite possibly, the most legendary battle in human history. Yet, the reality couldn't be further from the truth. Goliath was the underdog, and David would always beat him. About 300 years later, two newborn twin boys called Romulus and Remus were thrown into the river Tiber in central Italy to drown. They had been thrown in under the order of their grand-uncle, King Amulius, who ruled over a local city. Romulus and Remus miraculously survived and were taken into care by a now-legendary mother wolf who nurtured and suckled the boys. Soon after, a local shepherd came across the wolf and her two human foster babies and took them into his own care. When Romulus and Remus had grown up, they set out to found their own city to the north, but they instantly clashed over the decision on where to found it. Romulus chose a hill called the Palatine, which rose up beside the river Tiber in which the boys nearly drowned a few years earlier. Remus, however, wanted to found the city on a different hill. In an act of insult to Romulus' city, Remus vaulted over the defences. Romulus naturally responded by killing his brother, announcing to the world that anyone who dared leap over his walls would perish. With his brother Remus dead, Romulus named the city after himself. Rome was born. On his quest to found a new city, Romulus had brought along some of his friends and companions, but they needed more citizens. So, he declared Rome as a safe haven for the rejected rabble of the rest of Italy. Refugees, criminals, exiles, and runaway slaves flocked to the asylum of the new city, but they were primarily men. In order to get more women to Rome, Romulus held a festival and invited all the neighbouring people of the region. For Romulus, this was a huge success. Amidst the proceedings of the festival, he gave a signal to his men, who swiftly kidnapped the young women in attendance and carried them back off to Rome as their wives. This, understandably, stirred a little bit of conflict in the region, but in fear of seeing their brothers and fathers killed in warfare with the Romans, the kidnapped women interfered, telling their families that they were happy as citizens of Rome. Peace was settled between the Romans and their enemies, and shortly after, Romulus was crowned as the first ever king of Rome. He would rule for 30 years, and the city he founded would go on to become one of the most legendary empires to ever exist. The founding of Rome and the decisions and the events that transpired around it came to define many of the core characteristics of the city going forward. You see, when founding Rome, Romulus invited the outcasts of Italy to join him, an act that set up Rome's unique openness to outsiders for centuries to come. In Rome, slavery was not necessarily a life sentence, as slaves often bought or were even gifted their freedom and eventually made full Roman citizens. And as the Romans conquered one foreign territory after another, swallowing the entire Mediterranean Sea, they gradually accepted the conquered people into their society as again full Roman citizens. Even high-ranking Roman politicians could have origins outside of Italy. There was an emperor from a conquered province in northern Africa and several from Spain. All of this made Rome one of the most accepting and open ancient societies that we know of today, which played a huge role in allowing its population to swell to such impressive size, and it can be all traced back to Romulus's open arms when he first founded the city. Another defining moment in the founding of Rome was when Remus leapt over Romulus's walls. Romulus, apparently, logically, responded by swiftly killing him. This established Rome's perspective of the quote-unquote justified war. From their perspective, the Romans never ever went to war without it first being justified by something the enemy did first, just as Romulus responded to the wrongdoings of his brother. And this brutal act of brotherly violence would serve heavy anxiety to the Roman elite for centuries to come, because they saw how little hesitation their own founding father had for killing his own brother. This made countless high-ranking Roman politicians paranoid of being backstabbed by those close to them in a bid for power. When it comes to ancient stories, there are often blurred lines between what is myth and what is history. While many expressed a healthy dose of skepticism, the majority of Roman people at the time considered the story of Rome's foundation as a true historical event and celebrated Romulus as their founding father. Looking at the details now, however, the story likely falls on the side of myth. To begin with very few cities are founded with a single stroke by a single soul. Cities are instead usually founded over time with gradual changes in residency, social structure and sense of identity. This also meant the founding father himself likely never existed. Historians are fairly certain that instead of Rome being named after Romulus, Romulus was named after Rome. He was merely an imaginative character in a story made to explain the origins of the city and its people. And this is the exact reason why the founding story is so good at reflecting Rome and its wider definition. The Romans had not, as they assumed, inherited the values of Romulus. Instead, over centuries of telling and retelling this originally fictitious story, they had moulded the values and actions of Romulus to fit what theirs were at the time, The Romans were not destined to be an infinite extermination of each other because their founder killed his brother. Instead, their founder killed his brother because the Romans were constantly doing the same. The Romans were not naturally accepting and welcoming because their founder opened Rome as an asylum to outsiders. Instead, their founder did so because the Romans did so. Romulus and his story was an invention of the broken telephone. Now, of course, David beat Goliath around 3,000 years ago, and Romulus supposedly founded Rome only 300 years after that. These stories are old, but it would be naive to believe the broken telephone is a relic of a bygone age. Today, the broken telephone is as busted as ever. In a comfortable house in southeast Washington DC, a heroin addict sits reclined in a large beige chair. He has sandy hair, velvety brown eyes, and arms freckled with needle marks. His name is Jimmy. Washington DC is considered by many as a place full of positive role models for black children. Lawyers, doctors, politicians, bank presidents, but Jimmy says that since the age of five, he wanted nothing but to be a big-shot drug dealer. Five. Every single day, other junkies buy heroin from Jimmy's kitchen, and every single day, Jimmy now plunges a needle into his arm and descends into a hypnotic state of mind. Fast money and hard drugs are the keys to the good life, says Jimmy. Upstairs, a blend of anxious and placid people sit around the anxious waiting furiously for their shot. The Placid just had theirs. And after spending the evening speaking to Washington Post reporter Jeanette Cook about his life and the state of Washington DC's heroin epidemic, Jimmy begins to get fidgety. He twists in his chair and flicks at a nearby curtain. A guy named Ron brings Jimmy a needle and he slides it into his arm. Liquid subsides from the syringe, being replaced quickly by Jimmy's bright red blood, and his blood then retreats back into his body. Heroin in his system, Jimmy finds a nearby rocking chair. His head dips down and snaps upright in a hypnotic rhythm. Addicts call this the nod. Jimmy is eight years old. A flight attendant named Vesna Volovic accidentally found herself in Denmark after the crew she travelled with had mistaken her for another flight attendant also named Vesna. She had never been to Denmark, so she didn't mind. Vesna was still seeing all of these new cities for the first time, for she had only been on the job for 8 months so far, and was actually relatively surprised she had managed to get it in the first place. Visna had very low blood pressure, too low to pass the airline medical exam, but just before the test, she would drink an excessive amount of coffee, which got her accepted. After spending the afternoon and the following morning in Denmark, the crew departed on JAT flight 367 en route to Belgrade, with a few stopovers in between. The first leg of the flight went perfectly fine, although on arrival, Vesna and the crew noticed a man de-plane who was quite visibly upset. But the plane took off again for the second leg of the journey. 46 minutes in, an explosion ripped apart the plane's baggage compartment. This caused the plane to instantly depressurize, launching the crew and 28 passengers out of the plane who fell 10,000 metres to their deaths. Vesna, though, was trapped by a food cart in the main body of the plane. Her low blood pressure caused her to pass out immediately after the cabin depressurized. Trapped and unconscious, Vesna hurtled through 10,000 meters towards the earth. Jimmy's World is a story written by Jeanette Cook. It was published in the Washington Post in 1980. The story about Jimmy, an eight year old heroin addict, won a Pulitzer Prize, one of the most prestigious awards on the planet. The story obviously aroused concern in its readers, including the mayor of Washington, D.C. The mayor, alongside many other city officials, created a full scale police search for Jimmy. The search came back completely empty handed, and thus came speculation that some parts of the story may have been fictional. Possibly they weren't even looking for a kid named Jimmy. Maybe the name was different. An article was soon published with biographical details of the year's Pulitzer Prize winners, including the Jimmy's World author Jeanette Cook. Some journalists noticed some discrepancies in Cook's information and thus alerted the Washington Post. You see, on her initial job resume for the Post, Cook had noted that she was fluent in French and Spanish, while her newly published biography stated that she also spoke Portuguese and Italian. The Post tested her language abilities. They found that she spoke no Portuguese, no Italian, and very little French. They also found that she lied about her education in several awards that she had won. Cook admitted that the majority of her background was fabricated... But now hooked on the scent of fabrication, editors looked further into the details of Jimmy's world. In her notes, they found no evidence of a child named Jimmy. In her interview recordings, they found no evidence of a child named Jimmy. And the following morning, Cook resigned from the Washington Post, announcing to the world that her award-winning article about an 8-year-old who was addicted to heroin was completely made up. Jimmy never existed. The ultimate moment in a game of broken telephone is when everyone stares in anticipation at the final kid in the circle. Everyone is waiting to see what the phrase is, so they can compare it to what they heard and then to the original. In reality, assessing the damage of broken stories is rather difficult because stories aren't always a definitive case of true or false. The story of David and Goliath, for example, isn't clearly false, but it is misleading, because the base information of the story is true, but the way in which it is told presents an alternative conclusion. The traditional way that David beats Goliath leaves out the important context that a slinger like David is supposed to beat an infantryman like Goliath. By not including this information in the story, it turns David into the underdog, when in reality Goliath is. We've also never found any evidence that disproves the existence of Romulus, but in the same breath, there's nothing to support his existence either. With no real evidence on either side, it's kind of a case of razoring away the least likely scenario by investigating the details of the story closely, like we did earlier. And then there's Jimmy. Initially, Jimmy was a bit like Romulus, existing only in story outside of any disproving or confirming evidence. But later, Jeanette Cook admitted that Jimmy was completely fabricated, providing the satisfying and objective conclusion that the story was false. Jeanette Cook had picked up a perfectly fine telephone, smashed it to pieces, and then uttered through it an award-winning story that was completely broken. The broken telephone has corrupted history and human communication, but we will certainly continue to tell stories through it, bending the truth whether we are aware of it or not. So I think it's important that we are aware of the telephone's presence and that we challenge the stories that we hear through it. Otherwise, it's like playing a game of broken telephone and trusting that the final whispered phrase is the exact same as the original, without even checking. Vesna and the body of the plane landed in a heavy, snowy forest close to a small village in the Sheik Republic. A village local shortly came across Vezna. He was a medic in the Second World War and was so able to keep Vezna alive until rescue arrived. With her body at the hospital, they realized the damage. Vezna had fractured her skull and suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. She also broke both of her legs three vertebrae, her pelvis, and several ribs. The plane explosion was later revealed to be a bomb placed by a terrorist, possibly the man that got off on the first stopover. Vesna Volovic survived the 10,000 meter drop, the highest fall ever survived by a human without a parachute. And this story is completely